On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the Commonwealth Games. We just talked about the idea of a Commonwealth Games a few days ago, and then all of a sudden, boom, everything blew up. And now where does it stand? Well, we'll talk to one of the guys behind the local pitch for that. We're also going to chat about a museum in Hamilton, specifically a Hamilton museum, a museum of Hamilton. What about that idea? Chad Collins, counselor who brought this idea forward, will join us. And we're going to talk about one of the most unusual demands the government has placed on the Ontario Hockey League if they want to play hockey this year. What is it? You will probably be quite surprised when you find out what the government is expecting them to do. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You likely heard by now that there was a bit of an earthquake, for lack of a better terms, in the Commonwealth Games 2026 effort here in town uh, this week. MPP Donna Skelly, um, who is of, with the Conservative Party, the governing party, announced that the province will not be able to support a bid in the same summer as the World Cup of Soccer will be looking or will be hosting games, hopefully down the road in Toronto, two major sports events at the same time, roughly, uh, just doesn't work, they say. Uh, well, just a couple days ago, a few days ago, maybe, my next guest, my first guest, was here on the show talking Sounding rather optimistic, I thought, about the plan that was being put in place for the Commonwealth Games and how it might be received when it went in front of City Council today, or at least that was the plan. Now, well, let me bring in Lou Fraporti, who is with the Commonwealth Games Committee. Uh, Lou, thanks for doing this again today. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Scott. Um, Plain and simple, is the plan for a 2026 Commonwealth Games dead? Uh, well, plain and simple, no, it's not. And I think okay. the mayor's comments today at council, <clears throat> speaking to um, a very productive meeting that we had with, with Premier Ford yesterday, uh, addressed that. And, and in, a, in a nutshell, it's simply this. Uh, we've known for quite some time, although it was never officially communicated to us, that the World Cup in, uh, in Toronto in 2026 presented a concern to the government, understandably so. Um, and that uh, there was every likelihood of our having to get FIFA's concurrence, um, some clarity that there wasn't going to be an issue from their perspective before we could officially move forward. Um, uh, FIFA doesn't act quickly or, or in some cases at all. And so obviously we began and continue to work through the finalization of a, of a hosting plan with all of those stakeholders in expectation of the issue getting worked out. <clears throat> and where we are right now... Um, uh, which is where we were before, but but now obviously there's some urgency given the province's very clear statement uh, where we're working, that is the Federation is working to secure FIFA's support uh, and clarity from them that there isn't an issue from their perspective with respect to games in Toronto, should they award games to Toronto in the early part of the summer and a Commonwealth Games event six weeks later uh, in Hamilton in that year. And if there's an issue and if we can't get the clearance um, or the cooperation of FIFA in doing that, um, as the minister said repeatedly, uh, and I think in very, very positive terms, the province is very supportive, as the mayor said, uh, of a bid that would have to be in 2027. And we're continuing to work towards 2026. It's not up to us to... Um, to offer 27 that's entirely within the control of the Commonwealth Games Federation. They're aware of what the province has said, and we're going to attempt to resolve it with FIFA. And if we can't, then everybody will have to assess their position and decide whether or not 
it's feasible to to move the same event, the same bid, effectively, or the same hosting plan to 2027. And now you mentioned 2027 two or three times there. Uh, for a lot of people, the understanding was if we don't do it in 2026, it's 2030 because the Commonwealth Games, like the Olympics, like Pan Am Games, whatever, run on a quadrennial. Are, yeah. Is it a possibility that we just, rather than doing that, we bid for it, but just push it one year further down the road, as opposed to the thing we keep hearing, which is put it on the 100th anniversary of the British Empire Games and make it 2030? So l- let me try to clarify, because I think people are understandably a little confused by that. We have never talk- uh, talked about, because we have never been offered an event in 2027. Uh, what, the, what the minister has said from time to time, um, not a lot. A lot recently, but not a lot before, is that the province would be interested in navigating around their perspective on an apparent conflict with FIFA, and they've put out 2027. Um, We know from our discussions with Soccer Canada earlier in the summer around coordinating with FIFA that they themselves said, you know, it would be great if you could do this in 2027. Obviously, it's not up to us to suggest when multi-sport games should be held. But clearly, there is a a very strong interest in the Commonwealth Games coming to Ontario on these terms, which is to say, no bid um, and a very tailored event. There's just a concern about the date. So having heard that clearly, certainly in recent days, um, and having discussed this with the Federation, uh, they are aware of the fact that if there isn't a path to clarity with FIFA, that the province has made quite clear that it, it doesn't want to take a chance. We understand that completely. And then a decision will have to be made about 27. The terms of a 27 opportunity, and again, w- there isn't one formally, although the province has indicated that it would support it, would be that it would be delivered on the same terms, essentially, as what's been offered in relation to 26. That's radically different than the 2030 bidding opportunity, because that is a competitive bid. Um, We're by no means certain to win that. There are significant costs associated with competing with it. The bid itself is over a billion and a half dollars, 550 million in sports infrastructure. It's it's hard to defend the 2030 bid having gone through or being in the middle of the pandemic. So the, the opportunity around using the games exclusively and being able to do them modestly, creating only what is required and then focusing on housing and impact was an offer around 26, which if we're forced to, we would obviously wish to have a conversation around because we're interested in the relief. And and whether it's 26 or 27 from our perspective, and again, I'm not speaking for the Federation, if all levels of government are supportive of that and if the event can be put on, people can be employed, houses built, Um, whether that's in 27 or 26 at the end of the day, I don't think is critical. It's the impact and results that we want. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lou, I do have to to wonder, I'm assuming then, and this may be a dumb thing that it's obvious, but there's no way to do a games in Hamilton without the province being on board, correct? Correct. Yeah, correct. They would be, as they were with Pan Am, a primary funder, um, the way multi-sport games work in this country, um, senior levels of government, of course, work collaboratively. There's a general arrangement as to how they divide responsibility and financial contribution. But it is the principal, uh, the principal funder of that would be the provincial government. Uh, and it's for that reason, especially here, because the federal government has, <clears throat> has been quite public in it saying that if the provincial government is supportive of, of uh, a games in Hamilton, the federal government will be there. 
Uh, and that's been very critical to us in understanding the benefits that might accrue to the region. But the province is the linchpin. The, um, you met with the premier yesterday as well as the mayor. Uh, what was your sense? I mean, it, was it a, we really like the idea, we just don't like it now? Or was there, well, I mean, how did you interpret what the meeting said? Well, first, I, I, I've obviously, maybe it's not obvious, but I've never had the pleasure of meeting the, the, the premier before. And, uh, you know, we, we were uh, socially distanced, having a conversation, and it was it was very congenial and constructive. He was incredibly thoughtful. Um, I think uh, we're folks to see the premier and the mayor speaking to each other about issues in this region in the Commonwealth Games. I think everybody would be satisfied that public servants w- were really doing a wonderful job of having a constructive conversation. He um, I think there isn't there wasn't a person there, including the premier, who didn't feel strongly that this opportunity would be wonderful for Ontario. Uh, it's never been offered to any country before. The financial terms of this are very attractive to the province, but there is a concern about um, the timing of the event, and there is a concern, understandably, about in the end what will it cost and is there value there. And obviously, we believe that there is, and the due diligence that the province would have to bring to this is going to satisfy that unquestionably. The question of the potential conflict with FIFA has yet to be resolved. And, and, and I'll say this, Scott, um, in Minister McLeod's defense, she, the province, has made a commitment to the World Cup. There's no question that they have to honour that commitment. It would be wonderful for Ontarians to have the benefit of World Cup games in Toronto. And I think from her perspective, she'd like to minimise any risk to that commitment, have the benefit of the Commonwealth Games, and she's being, I think, quite prudent in suggesting um, whether the Federation is prepared to agree to not, or, or not, that we want to make sure that we have the benefit of both events without jeopardizing either. If FIFA were to say, look, there's no issue here, we can collaborate together as we did in 2015 around the Women's World Cup in Pan Am, then that would solve the matter. We understand that if that were to come from Switzerland, uh, that the Commonwealth Games would be supported by the province and the federal government, and 26 would be a go. Uh, but until or unless that happens, uh, I think the minister is wanting us to be prudent and to keep open the possibility of, of 27. And, and from our perspective, of course, we're obliged to do that. The announcement that we heard and, and this whole thing that we're talking about today, um, when it became public, uh, the, the spec wrote about it. Um, it's been on CHML, it's been on CHCH. There's been lots of comments from a lot of different corners of the city when this thing came out. What sense do you have right now for people in Hamilton and their appetite or desire for a Commonwealth Games? Well, I think it very much depends on who you ask. There are clearly constituencies within the city that have a greater degree of concern, in part because they feel they feel very strongly, I think incorrectly, you know, that if it's not the Games, they're going to get that equivalent type of investment uh, for social causes. I think the long history of that in the city proves that that is simply not the case. Um, and, and they are a very passionate uh, group. So that's a vocal voice. We have hundreds, if not thousands, of, of, of sporting clubs and associations, track uh, and others, that are incredibly supportive uh, of what we're in, endeavoring to do. We've got large constituencies of people who are very interested in affordable housing who have joined this with a view to using that. We've got very broad support among all of the major institutions, organizations. That, I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, in the region about that. And the reality is that few people really understand what is on offer. That's frustrating, um, but understandable, because this opportunity isn't like any before it in terms of its costs, the risks, the benefits. 
And it's going to take time, I think, for that to sink in. And we're trying in terms of public consultation to get people to take a moment, take a breath, reflect, look, understand what it is that's on offer. If senior levels of government and the private sector critically come through, as we expect and hope that they will, we're looking at investments in this region that will be in excess of 10 times the city's investment. Uh, That's money, jobs, and everything else that isn't going to come to Hamilton absent this. And that's what we're fighting for. Lou Forporty with the Commonwealth Games 2026 or potentially 2027 or I guess potentially 2030. God committee, thanks for the taking the time again today. I appreciate it. All right, Scott, take care. Bye-bye. Uh, there you go. So Lou was on, as I say, just a few days ago, sounding very optimistic. And then this happened. And now who knows what's going on with the Commonwealth Games. And as he points out, and I think fairly, there are those who now are very bummed out about this. And there are probably some who are very excited about the fact that it appears the Commonwealth Games may be teetering a little bit. Let me know where you are on this one. Send me a note, Radley at 900CHML.com. Are you really geared up for a Commonwealth Games bid? Or are you saying, no, thank heavens this didn't happen. Let's hope this kills it. Well, you know what? We've got people on both sides all over the city. Let me know. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you've lived here for any period of time, if you've been from the Hamilton area or the surrounding area, you understand that there is a ton of history in this city. Tons of fascinating stories. Some are good. Some are really good news stories. Some are not so good. Some fall somewhere in the middle. You know, those stories of the Hamilton mob. Interesting. Good. Uh, I'm not just going to say they're good, but they are really interesting. But that's what history is, right? History, if you do it right, if you are talking about real history, it's not sanitized. There are warts. There are good parts. Well, I bring all this up because two years ago, my next guest asked city staff to explore the costs, the challenges, what would be involved in creating a museum of Hamilton. We have museums in the city, but we don't have a museum telling the story of Hamilton. Today at council, a a report that was answering some of those questions came in front of council. I want to bring in Councillor Chad Collins, uh, who brought this up in the first place to talk about it. Councillor, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Uh, Before we get to what the report said, you were the one who launched this a couple of years ago. Why? What was it that made you decide you wanted to see what this, what, what could be done with this? Yeah, and I, there was a community conversation at the time, and um, you'll know very well that uh, Mark McNeil, who writes for The Spectator, has done some very interesting pieces over the years on all parts and, and all stories to do with Hamilton. And um, at the time, he had written an article that spurred the community conversation about, uh, you know, Hamilton has a tri- a, a, just a, a fascinating history, as you just um, alluded to. And, um, and we don't have a museum that celebrates Hamilton's history. And so the community conversation formed back in 2018, and there was a community group that came together um, who started to talk about the idea and uh, what it would take to open a museum here locally. And, um, and, and I followed those conversations and I took that idea, which certainly isn't my own. It was, it's a, an idea that was put forward by a number of people organically in the community. I took that, um, that uh, idea to council and asked our staff whether or not we could uh, undertake a feasibility study about uh, what it would cost, uh, where one might be located and what it would look like. Um, and that was uh, basically today's report was a check-in on the, on the motion and uh, staff uh, advised that they'll be back in early 2021 
with um, with more recommendations that that might uh, give us some direction in terms of where we're going. Of course, the world was a lot different back in 218. Uh-huh. So that has certainly changed things as it relates to, um, you know, you and I have talked about the challenges of with the city's budget right now and where we're going into 2021. So that has certainly changed the landscape. But I think there's still merit in the idea. And um, I think council, by and large, was very accepting and celebrated the idea at the time. Very supportive today. A lot of positive comments around the table. And uh, we're anxiously awaiting to see what uh, maybe a short short-term, medium-term, and long-term plan might look like regarding the project. I was, um, so so I saw the report. It was, people can find it online if they want. They can go to the city website and look up the meetings and the agenda and everything else. Um, there were three options that were sort of thrown out there. One was a full-scale, full-on museum. One was a storefront where there might be some rotating exhibits, and one was an online one. The city staff pretty much said, and for the reasons you just mentioned, um, costs and everything else and accessibility online might be the way to go. Was that something that you were comfortable with the idea that, you know what, it's a pretty modern thing and it's a way to make it available to everybody? Let's let's look at the online idea. Yeah, I'm not opposed to online. I, I still think there's merit in some kind of a bricks and mortar facility, although, you know, there. I think we can learn from some mistakes over the years. And I sat for a number of years on the Canadian Football Hall of Fame Museum board of directors and one of the challenges that we had as a board through the 90s and into the uh, early 2000s was funding it was largely supported by the city we didn't really get a lot of resources or support from the cfl and so if you were to go through the museum those days um you know if you visited in 1999 and then visited revisited again in 2002 you were largely looking at the same things um, that you had on your first visit so i you know from my own experience um, you know, as we gravitate into bricks and mortar, I, I, I think it, there needs to be a variety of, um, of exhibits. It, it can't be stale or else people won't come back. We learned that from the Marine Discovery Center down on Pier 8, which was su- supported with a lot of resources from the federal government, and it was unsuccessful. And I think there needs to be an interactive component for those museums, for anyone who's visited museums, whether they be here in Canada or elsewhere. I, I think there needs you need to keep people active if they're visiting a facility. So the, you know, my perfect example is the Hockey Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. which um, has something for almost for everyone. And um, and I found that in you know with my visits with my family and, and with my friends to the Hockey Hall of Fame, I'm I'm always looking forward to going back because there's always something different. And it's it's interesting. It's not just your you know your nose pressed against glass looking at um, you know old art. Oh, just like the commercials, yeah. just like the commercial shows you. Um, yeah. and, and I mean, it is a. Um, I, I wrote this in the paper the other day, and and we're talking about it now. It seems to me that the key to this, and this is a real challenge, and I don't know why it's such a challenge, but it seems to be, is it has to be interesting. And and I think yep. that's the concern for a lot of people is if we just turn a museum, whatever, no matter how important into a show and tell of antiques i don't know that it's worth anyone's time or money no exactly and i and i think that's you know if you read mark's articles regularly and they're all about hamilton um from one article to to the next it's a different subject matter and there's a different story to be told and i think if you can if you can match those stories which are very interesting as you just mentioned whether it's the rum runners whether it's the underground railroad here locally um you know we, we have a just a fascinating indigenous uh, history here locally and obviously elsewhere across the country, but lots of stories to be told. And if you can tell them in an interesting way and tell different stories regularly, I, I think you'll have a, a museum that has something to offer, not just for Hamiltonians, but for, for people who are visiting the community from elsewhere. And 
And I have to say that for as much as we've seen a lot of people migrating from Toronto to Hamilton, I can tell you that, you know, a lot of those new residents are just, um, you know, they're, they're, they're anxious to read about the city's history and, and about our past. And I, I think it, it doesn't need to just rely on um, visitors and, and tourism, which, you know, we, we do have an element of that locally, but there's lots of people here within the city who are n- new Hamiltonians who are anxious to read and learn all about what uh, the city was all about. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I hate to harp on this too much, but it really seems to me that we don't, as you pointed out, we don't have a lot of money right now. These are tough times and and whatever money we spend has to be used on something that makes some sense. Did you get the sense listening around the table today that it's possible with all the conflicting and competing interests and positions and sensibilities and everything else, is it possible in 2020 in the politically charged climate we live in to create an interesting museum that people could actually agree on what goes in and what stories are told, or is it just inevitably going to go down the road to a giant fight that accomplishes nothing ultimately? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, I, I, I think, you know, with, as we look at our past, we, we learn a lot of things and we, we can learn from mistakes. I think you opened with, you know, alluded to the comment that there's always controversy, it seems, these days when you talk about the past, and, and I think um, it's an education piece for a lot of people. People go to museums to learn about whatever subject matter is on display, and so I think that's important. And I think we have a very talented and capable staff in the city's culture division who are um, accustomed to putting those displays together and, and putting those stories together, and we have people, local historians, we have you know, people who are just local um, enthusiasts as it relates to whether it's archaeology or, or Hamilton's history and telling it in written form or other mediums. And, and I think, you know, we have a lot of talented people who could contribute to telling those stories um, in a way that will create community conversations and will get people talking about um, whatever the subject matter is. There's no shortage of stories to tell about the city and its past, whether it's pre-European settlement or post-European settlement. So that... I think that's what we have going for us from a from a marketing perspective, um, and I think from an education perspective, I think the opportunities are are endless in terms of what, what we could offer the community as it relates to telling those stories. I, you know, I, I think the challenge will be, and you've alluded to it several times, is the resources. And mm. museums don't make money; um, they, you know, they're they're there to, to offer services to the community from an educational perspective. They're there for entertainment purposes like the Children's Museum that we have in Gage Park, um, where I'm sitting right now. And, um, and so they're, they offer different things to different people. I think the key to this is to ensure that if we're going to do it and we're going to invest in it, whatever that investment might look like, we need to do it properly. And we need to make sure that it, we learn from our mistakes. And I alluded to the, uh, the Marine Discovery Center, and, uh, and we need to learn from others who've been successful at it. And I, I wouldn't think it, you know, that we're going to compare to the Hockey Hall of Fame in terms of resources and people who, who visit in, uh, from that perspective. But I think, you know, we, we can learn the basics in terms of it being interactive, that it needs to change. It can't be stale over a period of time. And it certainly needs to be accessible. It needs to be in an area of the city where it, there are frequent visitors and where there's some foot traffic and it's near transit. And so, you know, those are the basics. And I think our, we have some very capable staff with some people who are enthusiastic about seeing this move forward in the community. And and I think all of those things are working uh, um, in our favor. 
and it'll remains to be seen when we're going to be back to normal, if there ever is a normal again. Mm. Um, um, hopefully there'll be a new normal, and um, under those conditions, when it's safe to um, you know get back to our routines that we had before, although maybe altered, I, th- I think there'll be an opportunity over the next uh, two or three years to start talking about what this museum might look like. And I, first of all, I applaud the enthusiasts that you talked about. I've heard from a couple of them today and, uh, you know, their passion is great. And I, I love that they are this interested and this committed to doing this. I look at, and now there's a very famous, well, not a famous, but I mean, there's a museum in, in uh, Winnipeg that opened a number of years ago, the Human Rights Museum, the Canadian Human Rights Museum. And to me, I look at that as a bit of a cautionary tale for anything like this, because you're talking about human rights, which should be rather black and white. And I don't mean that in, you know, just... You know what I mean? Um, And yet they've had all kinds of fights about, well, whose human rights and which human rights are we going to comment on? And I'm wondering, do you believe that the city and the city staff that are not museum people, curators, or these enthusiasts, can the city get out of the way enough when the pressure is on because someone says, you didn't tell my story the way I want it? Can the city get out of the way enough to let the experts and the enthusiasts do this in the best way they think they can do it? Well, I would hope so. I mean, they're the experts, right? I mean, there there seems to be all kinds of experts now when you look on the internet in terms of people who pretend to know something about a subject matter and they just, they write these things or say these things without having the, you know, the experience or the credibility to back it up. And so we're seeing that in all aspects of, you know, especially related to the pandemic because there's no shortage of that in politics. We're seeing that now with the homeless encampments that we've seen across the city in terms of, you know, there are people who are activists who um, in some instances believe that they know more than the experts. And, um, you know, that that I think is something that's new. Um, it's not new here. In, um, it's, it's not unique to Hamilton. That's something we're starting to see uh, across North America. And I don't think we're going to get away from that. But, I, you know, I think we, we leave these subject matters and how these stories are told to a, we leave them to those people who who are, um, you know, in our. I would use our culture division as a as a great example. We leave them to local historians who know a lot about the subject matter, and certainly, um, you know, depending on the subject matter, you're you're. If we're dealing with the indigenous uh, stories that are going to be told, we do that in consultation with our indigenous uh, population, as an example. And so I, I you know, and I, I think in some instances these controversies. Um, they they create community conversations and they that that, that may work too. Yeah. Uh, we got to run, unfortunately. Chad Collins, Ward Five Councillor, appreciate the time and uh, thanks for talking about this. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me uh, let me bring in Bubba O'Neill from CHCH Sports. Just got off the air. Just finished bringing all the news of the day to the good people, the good folk of Hamilton, sir. How are you this evening? Unfortunately, I didn't do my job very well today because there's too much actually going on in my allotted time. So you'll have to wait for a couple of things like baseball playoffs and uh, at 11 o'clock, really. I mean, today's happenings, obviously, with the draft. And what is Lisa McLeod talking about? Well, that's what I want to ask you about. So for people who don't know this, and we learned about this now, we've got COVID. We understand there's COVID going on and there's questions and everything else, but the sport minister for Ontario says if the Ontario Hockey League is going to return and they're planning to return December 1st, they will not be allowed to do this if there is body checking and physical contact. How, Bubba, honestly, how in the world do you play high-level hockey, even if you say, okay, we're not going to allow fighting because they talked about that, but 
you can't not play hockey with some kind of physical contact. It's impossible. It's like saying you got to play football, but you can't tackle. I, 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 I'm really, I don't say this too often, but I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. I mean, I'm obviously not speechless, but I feel speechless because it just, can you imagine Scott? I'm trying to just picture the scenario of this, of, of obviously the, the press room when this happened. And obviously in the sit downs with CHL and OHL commissioner, David branch, when this was probably told to them, uh, I mean, what would, what would, what was his facial expression? <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I think the people I've discussed this with in, you know, in, in CHH here, the, their mouths dropped. Um, and, and I mean, and the debate whether this league should return or not is its own separate argument. But yes. it, it was, it, it was set scheduled to begin December 1st. Um, I understand that the league is facing some issues in the fact that there are three American teams in the Saginaw Spirit, the Flint Firebirds, and, of course, the Erie Otters. So I don't know how that's all going to work. So there's definitely challenges. Um, in, in, in attendance. Will there be attendance of people allowed at, uh, at First Ontario Centre? All these things that were up for discussion, and now this? I, I just well, don't know how the game can be played. Well, okay, so for the record, for those who haven't seen an OHL game in a while, this is no longer junior hockey the way it was in the 70s or 80s. This is no longer a huge hitting, lots of fights kind of league. It really isn't. There's not a ton of big body checks to begin with. But if you're playing hockey, and let's say you're a defenseman, one of the things you talk about is closing the gap. So a guy is skating towards you, you, by nature, you have to angle the guy off and you use your body to shield him away from the net and stuff. Is that now a potentially a penalty? Is that not allowed? I mean, at a certain point, you say, even in non-contact hockey, there is contact. It, it becomes, I mean, watch, watch women's hockey that by definition doesn't have body checking but there's lots of body contact. How do you possibly play a sport that is built a certain way and then say, but the way that it is played, you have to take all that out. It's it's going to end up with games being, like it's going to be 25-24 finals no, because no, no one's God, going to be God, able to God, defend. No, don't even go there because the games won't be played. Well, I agree, it, it, but I'm it, saying it, if it, you it, did, if you tried to, if it, you tried you to, you couldn't play it. It's, it's impossible. You cannot at this level... I'm not quite sure, and I'm hopefully someone from the Ontario or at least the Hamilton Minor Hockey Association uh, get me up to speed on this. I mean, I'm sure it's not too hard to research this. I'm going to guess that body checking and body contact is slowly implemented at the minor league level at, say, 12 to 13 years old. That would be yes. my guess. Yep, yep. And, 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 and I will tell you this. In the kids I've talked to over the years, they can't wait to actually play the game as it's supposed to be played. So to make this some type of shinny league hockey at this level, the highest, remember, and people forget this sometimes because we get sort of overblown by the U.S. college programs and we get overblown by what's going on in Europe. This is the highest level of junior hockey in the world. And some would say the OHL, based on at least what we're just seeing in the draft, is the best of the three uh, three different conferences in this country. We're granted to that here in Hamilton. And to, 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 to think that, that this league would change into some type of touch football league, in essence, it's, it's a joke. So you know what? I understand that COVID-19 is a serious, serious issue. 
And if you don't want people to play hockey, just say it. But to come up and tell people or tell the media that that's the expectation is, is insulting. Well, it, it, yeah, I mean, it just, it seems to me there's no way to play the game. Even if you sat down and said, we're going to try to accommodate what you're saying by not having body checking, there is still no way to not have body contact all through the game. And again, I go back to, you know, women's hockey at a high level. Um, watch that. There's no body checking by the rules, but there is tons of contact. There is tons of close proximity. There's tons of physical play. It's, it's just, it's, change. it's, you can't, exactly. I, but you, the, the women to their respect, with all due respect to the women's game, they've grown up playing that way. So to, to just use this light example, as but even saying, they couldn't, you're right. But even they couldn't fulfill the mandate that the government is now saying you would have to play, but carry on. You're right. Yeah. And even still, you're right. I mean, it's a struggle for them. As, especially as the game, the women's game, gets closer and closer to an upbeat style of men's play, if I can say that. As it gets closer and closer to that, and the players get more physically strong, as the players get quicker, it, it is getting more increasingly harder and harder to level, to, to, to restrict body contact at that level of play. But if you're talking about kids who have been playing with body contact and fighting, whether you like it or not, fighting is part of hockey, and it will always be. I know the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League have taken a, a hard stance against it, um, but it's but they haven't stopped it. They've curbed it in the sense that you will be penalized if you dropped your gloves, and and, and this will continue to happen. So if you're gonna if, if, if you're gonna stop fighting, you're gonna stop body contact. I just think this is some kind of pipe dream. It just can't happen, Scott. Nor can I see the, I mean, how do you coach it? If you're, if you're the coach. Well, you can't, you can't, <laughs> you can't. And, and, and I would argue that honestly, um, if I was a basketball player right now, I am having more contact, more close contact with my opponent than I am in a hockey rink. If I'm playing basketball, not only is the floor a lot smaller, but you're posting up down low or whatever else you're face to face with a guy. So does that mean that there can be no contact in basketball? Well, again, um, you know, there's no body checking in basketball, but it's impossible to play the game without contact. You start going through every single sport and you get to the point where you say it is really, uh, except for tennis or maybe golf or, you know, a few others, it's essentially impossible to not have some kind of contact with someone and then, you know, I say, okay, well, what does this mean? Let's say this continues on for a little while. Um, so the OHL now, uh, obviously <coughs> affected. What happens with the CFL next spring and summer if we're still in COVID time? If, if you're telling the OHL people you can't have contact and, and body checking, well, surely you got to tell the CFL people you can't tackle. Well, you can't really play a football league without tackling. Um you know, like it just, it, uh, I don't know. I heard this today it, it, and I had it's to. It's almost silly, Scott. Like, I mean, it, it, even even going down, and I respect what you're saying, but even just even extending the thought to, to other sports, like it just, it's just silly. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, you have the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League that made the decision to start early. Uh, and unfortunately, they're paying the price in the sense that you've had two teams, uh, three actually, that have been affected in a sense by, by COVID-19. You have the Quebec Rampart who... Uh, unfortunately, reside um, in the what they're calling the red zone, 
Um, so games have had to be postponed from playing games in that for that team and uh, in in that arena where that uh, where the ramparts play. You have uh, Breeze Buant, I believe, right now that just I guess it got announced today. Eighteen players testing positive for COVID nineteen. I mean, you know, hockey teams generally made up of about twenty three to twenty five players. So I don't know what they're going to do. Um, there are obvious challenges here, right? Um, I just don't think, obviously, leagues are trying to do whatever they can. The National Football League are facing their own crisis right now and trying to play games. Uh, this is not easy. This is a tough situation. Business has to be made. Games must go on, in a sense. Players have to continue to develop. I mean, what's going to happen in the draft next year? You're going to have no tape on players that, that, you know, because they didn't play all year long? I understand the leagues wanting to play, but if the government are going to try, if this is their solution, well, I guess we're in a lot of trouble as fans for watching hockey because um, it, e- it either is not going to happen or it's going to look like what is not the National Hockey League or at least the Ontario Hockey League. Yeah, I mean, I I would rather, I'm with you, I would rather they come out and say you can't play than to try to do this. And I know what they're doing. They don't want They don't want to be saying you can't play. But that's essentially what you're saying. If you if you throw an obstacle in the path that is so onerous and so insurmountable as far as how the game is played, it, simply for the point of saying, well, we don't have to be the bad guys then to tell you that you can't play. You've already told them they can't play. I mean, you've done it. You just haven't said you've done it. Really. What do you do if you're David Branch? I mean, I, I, he's basically issued, and I understand why he's issued no comment. They're not going to comment on any conversations they're having with the government, and I respect that. But, you know, if you're Steve Steos, if you're Michael Anlauer in this city, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Well, what, what can you do? I mean, you really, you, you, you can't do anything about it. If, if they put the kibosh on it and put these restrictions in play, uh, there's not much you can do. I suppose the league could say to the province, well, you know, tough nuts. We're going ahead anyway, and we're going to play and stop us. Is that really where you want to go? I mean, do you really want to end up in a legal battle with the province over this? And then somebody in the league gets it. And then you look like not only the bad guy, but you look so callous and heartless and everything else. I, I, I don't know where the league goes except to say, okay, well, and, and if you, and you know, Bubba, I, I, I do agree with what you say when you say, don't go down the road, don't even bother talking about it because it's silly. I don't believe the league would attempt this, but if they do, if the league does try to figure something out like this, uh, boy, it's going to be some ugly, ugly, ugly hockey that is going to, I think, damage their brand as well. So they're really in a no-win position. Here's a question here. I know this is your show, but I'll throw this question. To no, you. no, go ahead. Because I mean, this is a concern of mine too. I mean, and I'm just thinking, you know, along the lines of, of, of ownership and uh, of, of these, I think it's 20 OHL teams. I mean, do they basically said, look, if you're going to tell, tell, if you're going to tell us that we need to basically alter the way the game is played to satisfy your COVID 19s which are not ridiculous. We understand the safety of the people, uh, at least your concern, or at least showing concern about the safety of people. Uh, that this is, uh, it's fully respected. But there's, again, there's a big financial issue here. We've missed out on the entire OHL, WHL playoffs. There was no Memorial Cup played. That's thousands hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe even the millions of dollars that have been missed 
by these 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 conferences. You know, and I don't know what kind of arrangement Michael Anlauer has with the with the city on the on the rink. If he still has to pay if the games aren't happening or not, I, I'm, I'm I'm not privy to that information. But is it up to the Ontario government to finance these teams for games lost? I would. Well, look, I I feel great sympathy to the owners. At the same time, I would say I hope not. But I uh, but at the, but then or, on or the other hand, you say, but why should they? Sir, go ahead. I, I said, or give us a grant, kind of like maybe like the CFL was asking for, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, look, as I say, I have great sympathy to the folks who um, who are in this position. I really, really do. But I don't think that governments are in the position right now. They're so strapped. They're so thinned out by what they've already given away. I don't know they're in a position to start throwing around more millions of dollars because if you do it here, you have to do it for every league, don't you? And then every arts group and every music group and every whatever uh, who you say, well, you can't really get together. And every restaurant, why would, as much as I'm a fan, why would the OHL be more important than a restaurant that can't open or can't have enough people in there and had to change its business model? Why would they not get more money? So, I mean, you're you're walking into a huge Pandora's box if you suddenly say, we've told you you can't play hockey the way we you normally do, so we'll cover your costs for you to make sure it doesn't hurt. You have to be prepared then to do that with every business that you've put in rules and that has affected their business model. Tricky situation we're in here. It is that, for sure. It is that. And, and, and you know what? I mean, look, who who knows what changes in the next few weeks? Uh, one of the things, I was t- talking to Scott Thompson today, earlier in the day on the show, and he was asking me about minor hockey. And one of the things that I had proposed about minor hockey was, you know, my son grew up playing minor hockey. It would have been a horrible lost winter. It would have been so disappointing if you couldn't play for this. I don't know that this would solve the problem, but what if instead of a cage mask that everybody wore, what if you made everybody wear those glass fish bowls? Would that make it less likely that somebody was going to get breathed on? Could you enforce that in the OHL and say, sorry guys, that you may not find them comfortable. They may get really hot, but if you want to play, you got to wear one of those things. A full face shield mask. Can you do that instead? I don't know. But, I don't know. But it goes beyond that. I mean, what about what? Hey, we talk about the professional levels. And with the professional levels, I mean, Major League Baseball is playing right now, football is playing, baseball, football was in a, I mean, hockey was in a bubble. I understand that. But with that said, within these bubbles, in basketball as well, too, you're talking about the highest level of professional cleaning of the, of the, of the, of the, of the playing surfaces and the locker rooms. With all due respect to the fine people at the Mohawk Four Rink, can they duplicate that same? Can you guarantee the same level of cleanliness at those rinks? I don't think so. Which has me really concerned about minor league hockey in, in this city and in Burlington and Oakville. I don't mm-hmm. think it can be played, Scott. It because is it, because uh, it goes beyond the action on the ice. Well, it's all a giant mess. And, and the other thing, and just so people understand, and I think people do, and I've, I'm sorry if you're listening and you go, well, you're now just patronizing me. I'm not really trying to. Um, somebody said, well, why not have the OHL go into a bubble like the NHL did? The, the OHL players, many, many, many of them are still high school kids or college kids. Uh, the OHL doesn't make the kind of money the NHL does 
putting a bunch of kids out of school who need to be in school in a bubble at enormous cost to the league would not only bankrupt the league in all certainty, um, but you'd be hurting the very people that you're trying to help. So it, it really, as a as a as a model, you couldn't follow that. There's no way the league could do what they've done in the NBA or the NHL. There's just no way. So it's I, either yeah. you either play or you don't play. I'm hearing that the. I mean, again, I'm at some point the number will be be announced. But I'm hearing the rough estimates of the bubble for the two bubbles, Edmonton and Toronto, in total for the National Hockey League cost in excess of 75 to $80 million. I'm hearing in the NBA, that number is almost double, Scott. Almost double. Well, so you're at Disney World. It's not cheap down there to begin with, but yeah. That's, <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. I'm, I'm serious. You're right, you're right, right? So even in the Ontario Hockey League, who already have many of its players on a billet situation, that means you would have to pay, these kids would all have to be in hotels. Uh I, I don't think the Ontario Hockey League would, can afford this, can afford to have a bubble. No, they can't. They can't. There's a couple owners. There's a, few, a couple or a few owners who, you know, probably could if they absolutely had to, but it would be huge losses that they didn't bank on, that they didn't sign up for. And the flip side, though, is there would be teams that would go under almost immediately because there's no way they could do it. They're community teams, there's no way that some of these teams, you're, you're going to ask Peterborough or Owen Sound or some of these teams that are smaller teams or Sarnia to fork out that kind of money, no chance. No chance at all. And so you're almost better now to say, you know what, we just don't play and figure it out afterwards. But my goodness, then you get into a whole thing which we're not going discuss, to discuss today about how, what impact does missing not only half of a year, but a whole other year have on the brand and on getting people to come back and on losing the tradition and everything else of people coming. It's, it's, this, these are not easy times for sure. This is certainly a story and a, a discussion today that uh, I'm guaranteeing the league did not want to hear and is now sitting there going, what in the world do we do now? Anyway, Bob O'Neill from CHCH. Love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, great chat. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.